it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks. Well, welcome to the Investing for Beginners podcast. I'm Dave Ahern, and Andrew Sather is here with us. Tonight, we're going to talk about investing checklists. We're going to talk a little bit about when to use checklists and how they can help you when you make buying stock decisions as well as selling stock decisions. So I'm going to start us off and talk a little bit about my friend Monish Prabhrai. I've talked about him in the past. He's an investor that's originated from India, and he's a value investor cut right out of the Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett ilk and he's very conservative, and he's been very, very successful with his investments. Uh, I believe he's in the high 40% range in returns over the last 10 years or so. So he is one of those gentlemen who has a very concentrated portfolio. I believe he only has six or seven stocks in his uh, portfolio right now, and the majority of them is in actually one or two companies. So he is a gentleman, he's written a book called The Dondo Investor, and if you have not read this book, it is fantastic, it's very easy to read, and he lays out a lot of his investing principles in the book, and he's very, very well read, and he's a great writer, I've talked about this before, and I really enjoy his writing, and he's just, he's one of those people that's so smart that he's really good at explaining things and makes it sound easy, and Andrew and I have talked a lot about this, these are simple ideas that we talk about, but they're not easy to do. So uh, with some of the checklists that he talks about in his book, I'm going to kind of outline those a little bit. These are some of the things that I use when I've created my own checklist. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of say as we talk about checklists tonight, these are personal decisions that you make. Andrew and I are going to give you some ideas of some things that we use in our checklist. But I kind of agree with Monish Prabhai. He has never revealed his complete checklist as well as Charlie Munger has not and Warren Buffett because these are personal ideas and these are things that you have to experiment with on your own. You can use some of the things that Andrew and I talk about today as guidelines. But, you know, as you get more experience with your investing, I would highly encourage you to kind of create your own checklist and kind of go from there. So some of the things that I kind of use as kind of a guideline for me is focus on buying an existing business, buying simple businesses and industry with a super slow rate of change, 
by distressed businesses in distressed industries, buy businesses with a moat, that is a big one, bet heavily when the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor, buy businesses on at big discounts to their underlying intrinsic value, ding, 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 that's huge for us, look for low-risk, high-uncertainty businesses. And this is a great place to start as a framework for a checklist, and I'm going to chat a little bit about each of these a little bit, and Andrew obviously can throw in his, his five cents worth as well. So focus on buying existing businesses for me, this is all about looking for companies that are already out there. We've talked a lot about IPOs in the past, and IPOs are can be a very dangerous thing to get into. So looking for a company that's already in business, is already doing what they're doing for several reasons. One, you're going to know where the sales are coming from, where the profit's coming from, where the earnings are coming from, whether they're paying a dividend or not. Those are things that are all going to be out there and easy for you to understand. Uh, buying simple in- businesses with industry with super slow rate of change. You know, really, you know, we've talked a lot about this and looking for businesses that you can easily understand. So, you know, getting into something that's in biochem for me is going to be out. You know, I'm just not smart enough to understand that type of business. But maybe getting into something that has to do with restaurants or banks or, you know, in the food industry or, you know, something along the lines of, you know, trains or, you know, things that. You, know, you can read the 10K and you can easily understand. Those are things that, you know, are things you can kind of wrap your brain around. Uh, buying a, a distressed business in a distressed industry, you know, looking at things that are beaten up. We've talked about this in the past. You know, looking for companies that are strong businesses, but they've been beaten up because they're in an industry that's being, you know, beaten up because of, you know, there may be a downturn in the economy. There may be bad news that's come out on the, you know, that particular sector, you know, there's a lot of different things that could go into that. Uh, buying a business with a moat, that's obviously a huge, huge, huge one. You know, looking for a company that's going to have a durable com- competitive advantage. That's a little, you know, nod to my friend Charlie Munger. You know, looking for companies that are going to be strong businesses that have built a you know, strong business over a long period of time and that have been able to sustain through the thick and thin of, of credit cycles and as businesses go in and out of being popular and unpopular as well as in the stock market as well as just generally. And bet heavily when the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor. You know, that is something that Monish talks a lot about in his book. And, you know, that's not something necessarily that I subscribe to, but he talks about that quite a bit in the book. Uh, buy businesses a big discounts to their underlying intrinsic value. That is huge with me. Looking for a margin of safety, that's what he's talking about with this. You know, the bigger margin of safety that you can buy, the better you're going to be. A, it's going to help you make a whole lot more money when the stock market or when the business rebounds. And you're also going to help you if you do make a you know a bad decision or the underlying fundamentals that you're looking at were maybe not as profitable as you thought then you're not going to get burned as badly and looking for low risk high uncertainty businesses that's also you know a big one kind of tagging in with the intrinsic value you know Warren Buffett is obviously you know a big a big fan of checklists and he has a kind of a simple one that he's outlined as well Manish Pabrai has revealed that he has 97 to 98 questions that he asks about a company it takes him about 20 minutes to run through them and basically what he does when he's looking through this is he kind of uses his checklist as a way of looking initially at a business and if he can answer all those questions in about 20 minutes then he'll start to 
digging into it and looking for more information to see if this is indeed something that he's going to invest in. And he has groups that he kind of narrows everything down to. And I really like this as well. You know, valuation, obviously, Andrew and I have talked a lot about that. Leverage, management and ownership, you know, looking at the the management and whether you think they're good or not. Uh, Moats and personal biases, you know, as well. So we've talked a lot about that as well. So why are we talking about checklists? So checklists, the reason why checklists are so effective is our brains are designed to take shortcuts and arrive at answers quickly. Uh, When you see a line, you run. Uh, You don't process your options, you just run. And that's kind of the way our, our brains are designed. And so, you know, when you think about checklists, you know, we think about, you know, I from my own personal experience, you know, I love when I have a checklist and I can cross something off. It's like you get a little bit of an endorphin rush from being able to, to knock something off your list. And that's really one of the things why checklists are so effective. Uh, also, because we're human, we also mix rationality and emotions. Uh, when we notice a great business is undervalued, we, re- we read up on it, we run through a number of you know questions, we arrive at a decision, and it's not as effective as a checklist. When you have a checklist and you have things that are concrete that you can run through and run through and run through, you won't run into this, you're falling in love with a company and making a decision to buy it really because you're biased about the the company, not because all the other items in your checklist are being met and you feel comfortable and about making a good decision. And so, you know, when you're creating a checklist, I have about, about 50 questions that I run through and a lot of it, frankly, centers more around the numbers part of it. And some of it's about a lot of the rest of it's more about management. And then there's a little bit more about the personal biases, but I really try really hard to keep it numbers based because that to me eliminates a lot of the emotion of it. And so that's really kind of where I fall on the, the checklist part of it. And be interested to hear what Andrew thinks about what I was just saying. Well, first I would say, I think it was an excellent brain dump. <laughs> Definitely giving me a run for my money here. I mean, how do I follow that up? <laughs> I'm curious. So, like, whatever you talk about personal biases, uh, can you give like an example of maybe one or two of those? Because when you talk about the benefits of a checklist, I think that's probably the biggest benefit there. We, we always talk about. I love to just say, you know, numbers don't lie. Look at the financials. The financials will tell the picture. Make sure you're looking at the complete picture, and so. You know, having a checklist is just another way to take away the emotion and look at the logical side, look at the rational side, look at what the real picture of the stock or the business is. So I'm curious, you know, other than I guess, obviously having valuations and metrics would be a big part of that. Are there other specific ones that you would use? Well, with the, with the bias part of it, you know, I can give you an example of a company, um, that, uh, when I first really started getting into investing and really started kind of diving into the numbers, um, I had read a quote about Peter Lynch, and we've talked about this before, where he talks about investing in what you know. And so I started looking at Starbucks. Uh, I am personally not a huge coffee person, but my wife is. And so I thought, you know, I know a little something about you know, restaurants and I know a little something about what they do. My wife obviously is a huge fan of their, of their products and I already spend a lot of money with the company. So maybe I should look and see if they could give some back. And so I started digging into the company. So I went into the company looking at going, you know, I already wanted to buy it. And so I started looking at the numbers and I came across 
a couple things that were concerning. Uh, number one, that at the time, their same source sales were not as strong as they were expecting them to be. And also, their debt to equity ratio was steadily increasing. And so, as you know, somebody who's a value investor, that set off you know big red flags. And so, as I started digging in more to it, they were using some of that leverage to try to increase their earnings to make the stock look more attractive to investors. And that was like a big, big no for me. And, you know, I just, I was like, okay, nope, passing on this. And so that was a company that I really, really, I, I wanted to buy it. I really did. I was all set to pull the trigger on it. But as I started going through the checkbooks that I was starting to create, that was one of the first biggies. And I got that from our friend Andrew after reading his, you know, book about, you know, the metrics that you can look at to help you start to decide whether, you know, you want to invest in a company. And so that was one of the first ones I put on my checklist. And that was sure enough, when I came to that part of their, you know, financials, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we need to look at this more. Okay, yeah, we're going to pass on that. So that was a company that sprang to mind right away when you asked me that question. That's cool. I mean, I don't know how they've been doing lately, but definitely we haven't seen a bear market in a while. And so those companies that can get away with rising debt to equities will do so uh, until like Buff Buffett says, when the, when the tie goes out, then you see who's not wearing pants. So I think, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what the stock's done since, but I think to the, the real risk or danger is probably to be seen into the future. Yep. Yep. I agree. So I think that, you know, to me, that was where, you know, like you said, you know, you could tell where the, the tide was going to go out and that scared me off. So that was, that was one company that really sprang to mind. I would, I would have to think I'd, I'd have to get back to you on the, another one more recently. Cause I've tried really hard to check, you know, as I've grown more experience and more confidence in what I'm doing, I have really tried really hard to check, you know, that impulse to, you know, go out and buy Nike because I love their shoes or go out and buy, you know, uh, you know, uh, a restaurant because I really like their food or, you know, a guitar because I really like their guitar or, you know, a wine distributor because I love wine. So I've really tried to check that, you know, by having a checklist, it's really helped me, you know, eliminate to that bias from my thinking and <clears throat> excuse me to really be cognizant of it because you know of what happened with starbucks you know luckily i didn't buy the company i'm sure it's gone up since then because everything in the world's gone up except you know of course snapchat and uh, you know so <laughs> but uh you know pat, that, pat ourselves on the back first yeah okay. yeah quick, quick <laughs> 15 second break yeah yeah there okay we're done moving on um <laughs> uh, so that's that's really i guess that would be my thought on that i i think it's interesting too i mean maybe it's like a branch of confirmation bias actually haven't really heard it talked about much as far as i don't know would you call it like a familiarity bias where right you know it's just like these products that are it's not necessarily a bad thing you know it's obviously i have hygiene products, you know, food products, all those sorts of things. I do feel that special pride when I look in my cupboard and I see 
oh, this is look, this is one of my dividend fortresses. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really a cool feeling because then you feel like you're contributing to your own wealth, <laughs> but at the same time, having a checklist makes sure that you're differentiating from just investing because you want to be a fanboy or investing because actually this is the right decision. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Right, exactly. You know, when you think about that, you know, I'm I'm an Apple person. I love their phones. I love their products. And, you know, that's a company that I have many times looked at and thought about investing, but I get really concerned because they've they've tried so many different other things to try to differentiate and get away from the iPhone being their thing. And, you know, one of my concerns is because it's a technology company, you know, what happens if seven years from now something comes along that just makes iPhones obsolete? And, you know, we think, oh, that'll never happen. But, you know, think about our lives 10 years ago. They were not, there was no iPhones, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's become such a huge force in our life in such a short amount of time was to say that something couldn't come along and make that obsolete again. So, 
you know, it made me, it's made me hesitant to, to pull the trigger to buy into the company, even though it's a great company and they, you know, do a great job and they got, you know, just tons and tons of cash on their balance sheet. You know, that's, it's a concern for me. So, you know, it's, it's one of the items on my checklist that, you know, long term, I don't know if they're going to be profitable. So, yeah, and I've, I've ran Apple through my VTI. Haven't done it in like the last couple months, but I know at least six months to a year ago. And mm-hmm. I found it was not quite like, like a strong sell where it's like, oh, stay away. But it's not quite at that like discount or <laughs> what did you call it earlier? Not moat, but, um, it just didn't have like a, a margin of safety that was no, sufficient no. enough from a price basis. So, on an earnings basis, it was really, you know, it's, it's doing fantastically. Again, from a, a cash basis, it has just gobs of cash. But like you said, and I think that's especially crucial to use some intuition into looking at that particular company is that maybe it would be more of a prudent investment if it had, let's say, more, more assets on their balance sheet or, or more of a, more of a revenue, you know, it's like the things like cash or earnings can really evaporate quickly. So you yep. have to take that into account. And when you couple that with the fluidity of, of the tech industry, I think it's, it's really, really just a good thing to consider. And I think, I mean, obviously value chart indicator, I've ran it and it kind of agrees with you, but I think just in general, it's a good, kind of approach to take when you're when you're looking at these kind of different opportunities. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and to kind of tag along with that, you, you think about, you know, the company since, you know, Steve Jobs passed away, you know, it, he was the driving force and the innovator. And since the company, since he passed away, the company is obviously running perfectly fine. And this is by no means a, a dish against the company, but they've been floundering to, to find innovation. And, you know, that is, you know, when you talk about management, those are things that you have to take into consideration and you have to think about the type of business that they're in. And they are very much in a technology innovation type business. And that is one of the concerns about the company is what are they going to do to continue to, you know, evolve and separate themselves from, you know, I hate to come back to the iPhone, but what are they going to do to separate themselves? Because, you know, that was one of the things that Microsoft struggled with for years was what are they going to do to differentiate themselves? And they've, they've, you know, kind of starting to come out of that with, with the cloud computing and really becoming a, a leader in that. And, you know, that's maybe will set them apart five, 10 years from now, but they're going to have to do something else. And that's, that's what, you know, Warren Buffett all along has been one of his concerns about getting into the tech realm. And, you know, I think that was one of the reasons why he's been so hesitant is because there's so much change. And that's one of the things that, you know, Manish talks a lot about in his book is trying to find, you know, stable, you know, uncertain, high uncertainty businesses, you know, something that people are always going to need, like Andrew was talking about, you know, the staples that you need in your cupboard and, the, you know, the stuff you brush your teeth with, you know, we're always going to need those. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Which I think kind of segues into what I want to talk about, about the moats. So this is something that's not really 
again, not talked about too, too much. Um, I, the way I, I guess mainly look for a moat is I look from it from a financial perspective. I think everybody knows how much focus I like to look into the numbers, but there was some time a couple years ago where I kind of stumbled into some research and I think people who maybe find this like really intriguing can really like maybe pursue it and, and find, you know, pull wisdom and lessons out of it that really isn't popularized too much when you go look at the, the different investment classics that are out there in the bookstores. There's this idea of, oh, it's called where I'm looking at my blog post right now. It's called the parade. The Paratian distribution, uh, by Pareto, I guess the power law distribution. So there's like a 40-20-10 rule. Um, if you go to Google, for example, type in any search on Google and you'll find that where people click tends to follow this 40-20-10 rule. So 40% of the people will click on the first result, 20% the second, 10% the third result. And this is actually has a lot of parallels in lots of different aspects of life. Um, it might be a little bit woo woo or <laughs> a little bit out there, but you can look at, you know, different sports teams, um, in religion that you have the Holy Trinity. There's a lot of emphasis on the number three when it comes to a lot of writing rhetoric, um, stuff like blood, sweat and tears, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. There, there's just this, something about the number three. And so what's interesting is you tend to see this happen a lot in industries. So take, for example, the soda industry. Who are the big companies? Pretty much it's just Coke, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper. I don't know if Dr. Pepper's owned by one of those two by now, but I know, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the general thing. Uh, at the time I wrote this, you know, you had American United and Delta were the big three of the airlines. GM, Ford, and Chrysler were the three, big three American automobiles. And for the Germans, you got the Audi, Mercedes-Benz, and BMW. So what tends to happen in these industries as they mature is you, you tend to get these big three type of companies that start to, in a sense, take over. And, and you might have smaller competitors and they start to get swallowed up by these big companies. And if you look, this... Pareto law of 40, 20, 10 really kind of breaks down to a T with a lot of that. So I think having that moat and looking for something that's like you said, Dave, something that's certain and there's not much uncertainty around how these earnings are being made. What's their positioning in the marketplace being on that 40 tail of a, of an industry is going to really bring some, some serious wealth, not just in the next year, but compounding over the next very many years. And if you combine that with a strong financial position and even more so with a discount to their true intrinsic value, now you have all these sorts of forces kind of working together in one magical way and it can really make for some nice returns. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy. And I, you know, you think about it, you know, as you were talking, I started thinking about that, you know, there are so many, you know, different phrases and different ways that we think about things in threes. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that's kind of out of the left field, but 
I, you know, there, if you look up Pareto's law, you'll see this graph and it perfectly mm-hmm. follows that 40, 20, 10. And you'll see it a lot in, uh, <laughs> the example I gave on the blog post was, uh, NBA finalists and the NBA okay. finals teams. And it yeah. follows that perfectly. Like the, the chart has this Pareto's law graph and there's a, just a lot of different instances. I'm obviously not, uh, Pareto's law academic, but I'm sure you can find them out there. Um, and I think it's something that can really show you the power of having a moat as one of a, a part of a component of a checklist that can maybe help you find a stock that will do better than all the others. Yeah, exactly. And no, that's awesome. So we've talked a lot about buying. Let's talk a little bit about selling. Okay. Let's talk about it. So I did get a email from a reader and I'll, I'll, read through it real quick um so there's some stuff in here about mutual funds versus individual value stocks i think we've covered that in the past uh she she basically talked about how in her example she had purchased this ticker mmsi in february 2016 she bought it at 1860 the stock's now at 40 so she gained double uh, she says, I know the stock does not have dividends, which is my first mistake. She says, around the same time I purchased ticker GTLX, a no-load mutual fund, on April 2016. Uh, and it went up for a gain of about 20%. So she says, number one, it seems that mutual funds and ETF funds gains grow much slower than the stock does. Uh, why do so many advisors tell you not to purchase a good value stock over a mutual fund? And she says it's obvious that the single stock made more in her portfolio than the mutual fund. And then her biggest problem is when do I sell that stock? How much should I, how much gain should I obtain from selling it? This is where I've lost funds before because I held on too long. So obviously I think a big theme of our podcast has been all about using value stocks and why that can give you better returns than an ETF or a mutual fund. She's asking about why the advisors don't advise you to purchase a stock and instead go for a fund. If you're struggling with that and want to know the answer, go back to our archives where we talk about the... Do you remember the name of that episode, Dave? I think it was episode six, basically... Uh, the financial industry, what the financial industry doesn't want you to know. I think yes. that's the title of it. Yeah, Go check it was. that one out. Basically, the financial interests of many of these advisors, many of the people work on Wall Street, the brokers, all, even the fund managers themselves, they don't align necessarily with the average investor and their own customers. So if they're financially incentivized to do to act a certain way that's maybe not beneficial to you, it only makes sense that the majority of the time that's what's going to happen. And that's just kind of the way Wall Street works. So on top of that, a lot of these value stocks, again, you are able to make that decision to buy a company with the margin of safety, with an emphasis on the safety. So you can get in kind of more conservative stocks, stocks with more healthy balance sheets, stocks that might not drop as much as another group of stocks that are maybe a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more risky. And also, you know, you have that ability to kind of pinpoint and sniper point on something where, okay, well, that has a really great discount. 
And I don't know what the price looked at. I've never looked at ticker MMSI, but there's a lot of different instances where you can kind of pinpoint on a stock and see that there's a great discount there. There's a great value and you can swipe it up and see that value kind of return to where it's supposed to be. And you can get some really nice gains from that. There's also the whole dividend discussion, which I'm sure I've, I've waxed on about that before. Uh, check out the, nah. Nah. <laughs> check out the episode in our archives about the drip. I think it might be episode three or four. I had a metaphor about coffee drips and, uh, it could be a good example of why, how a stock can really outperform a mutual fund that has a lot to do with your ability to reinvest. So how much should I gain? How much gain should I obtain before selling it? That's really, really a dangerous mindset to have. And, you know, this idea that, oh, I've lost funds before because I held on too long. You kind of have to approach it in similar type of way that you approach life. And in life, you're going to have difficult decisions, most likely. You know, I mean, we all like to have just very easy, comfortable low stakes kind of lives. It's it's just kind of in our nature to, to try to seek comfort. But chances are you're going to have decisions that are really tough to make. And so when those types of things happen, you're going to regret one way or the other. So you just kind of have to make a choice and then just plow on through and, and try not to look behind you and, and try not to second guess yourself. When you're talking about the stock market, that's 100% true. And that's going to be true with pretty much any investment that you make. There's just, it's impossible to be right 100% of the time. None of us have a crystal ball. There's no way that you're going to really know. And you know, I mean, we're going to miss out on opportunities all the time. How many of us missed out on Bitcoin? How many of us didn't get into Amazon when it IPO'd? You can't really focus on all these what ifs. Oh, I missed out. Oh man. You know, they call it FOMO, fear of missing out. Get your mind away from that and just understand that that's just a part of life. That's just a part of the stock market. There's going to be a lot. You spend time thinking about what you're missing out on and and really you focus all your energy on that and you're not going to have enough energy to focus on your own portfolio, your own gains and to be able to actually have the, the focus to be able to find great discounts and be able to make nice profits for yourself. Uh, in the sense that, you know, there's always going to be someone better than you. There's always going to be someone with more money than you. There's always going to be a stock that does better than the ones that you have. And you just kind of have to let that go. Just understand, you know what? That's just part of the game. And then to kind of go along with that, you have to understand that you're going to have to make decisions to sell. Sometimes they're going to be right. Sometimes they're going to be wrong. And you have to, again, be okay with that. Now, that doesn't just mean that you go around willy-nilly and just say, well, whoa, you know, say la vie, seize the day. I'm just going to, you know, just do however I feel. And that's not going to be good either because you're just rolling the dice at that point. Just like you need to have a strict set of systems, checklists in place. When you're buying a stock, you want to have, basically, you want to have everything kind of working for you, have all the odds in your favor. The exact same thing applies when you're, when you're talking about selling a stock. So how can we do that? What kind of checklist would I use? Well, I've talked before how I split the portfolio into two 
parts. You have the regular portfolio with a 25% trailing stop and a dividend fortress portfolio. So I explained a little bit in some previous emails, but I didn't have a chance to talk about this on the podcast yet. But a big reason why this split breakdown happens, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but another one that's really crucial is that you're not going to have a dividend, a real dividend opportunity, long-term opportunity pop up every single month. So, you know, there will be times in the market where companies and stocks with good dividend track records will trade at higher premiums than regular stocks. Um, we've definitely seen that recently. And of course, this is going to apply throughout individual stocks as well. So it's not, you can't just say, oh, the whole market's too overvalued. But there's, there's just, it's just impossible to have an opportunity in a dividend growth stock at every single time. There's not that many. I mean, there's a lot of stocks out in the stock market and I'm able to find opportunities every single month. But there's not enough strong dividend kind of grow the dividend over 10 years, 20 years, that kind of long holding period that we're really hoping for to get really superior compounding through the dividend and through reinvesting it. That's not going to be available at a great price every single month. So it's nice to have that regular portfolio where I'm kind of trying to more pick out and, and scope out single stocks with great discounts to intrinsic value with the understanding that I might be timing it wrong. You know, you could buy a stock with a great discount and it's just super cheap, but it just keeps falling. And a lot of times people call that trying to catch a falling knife. Um, and sometimes it can be because you have a value trap. Obviously I do everything in my power to try to mitigate that. But also sometimes it's just the market just wants to beat up a stock and you could go in and the stock could continue to fall 20, 30%. So that's why you want to have those trailing stops in place to prevent against that and understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm really buying this stock because I understand it's undervalued. I don't necessarily want to hold it for 10, 20 years. It would be nice to, and I'm, you know, with a trailing stop attached, it could definitely, you could ride it for, let's say 10, 20 years just riding those gains up and up and up. But, you know, sometimes the market doesn't always cooperate, so you want to have that trailing stop. So I think a trailing stops, if if you're going to kind of try to structure your portfolio in that way, a trailing stop can be really useful as its own just single checklist item for selling. It allows you to participate in all of the upside while it gives you a floor and kind of caps your downside, which allows you more freedom to be right and wrong and kind of the same idea as diversification and, and all those type of things. You're, you're putting the odds in your favor, understanding that you're not going to be 100% right 100% of the time. For the dividend fortresses, the, the checklist I have is a lot more loose, liberal. It's, again, I want to hold these as long as possible. And during a bear market where I might be selling out of a lot of the trailing stop positions, I actually want to be continuing to hold these dividend fortresses because number one, they're going to be companies with long track records of dividend payment and increasing, hopefully even through bear markets. So what that means is they're going to continue to pay us that dividend throughout a bear market. And it's actually, you can look at it as it's actually beneficial in that way because as a, a stock price is falling, you're going to be receiving 
that yield goes higher, that dividend yield you're receiving goes higher the, the, the lower that the stock falls. So let's say you bought the stock at 30, it goes down to 20. You're getting that same dividend, but now when you repurchase more shares, because the stock's at 20 instead of 30, you're, you're able to purchase more shares with that dividend. So your yields, you know, you're, you're essentially the, the new shares that you're accumulating will have this higher yield attached to them. And so if, if we're going to hold through bear markets, that's going to really let us take advantage of the whole buy and hold idea and understanding that these are really strong stocks, strong businesses, long track records. They're going to be around for decades. So we're going to let them recover with the rest of the market. And we're going to hopefully hold them for you know almost forever. But there are going to be red flags that pop up where you know this isn't normal this is actually symptoms of of a bad business it's not that the market's beating it up for no reason the market is beating it up because the business is either bleeding cash or the business model's broken or or somebody a competitor's taken over these are problems that you need to address and you just need to nip them at the bud so i have 3 um what they are is number one, a complete cut of the dividend. This is going to be especially huge as a red flag for a company that's historically had a great strong record of growing the dividend and paying the dividend. There, There's times, and I've seen it already with my dividend fortress, where the, the stock doesn't even continue growing the dividend. That's fine. But it, uh, when I talk about complete cut, that means they just no longer pay a dividend anymore. And that's usually one of the, the the dominoes that starts to fall, and then you might see bankruptcy happen later. So, you know, businesses and management and stocks they really don't want to have to cut a dividend completely because they understand the implications of that. It's kind of signaling to the rest of the world that we are in big trouble, so much so that we don't have enough profits to give out to our shareholders, and it's. It's something they're going to try to avoid at all costs. So if you see it, you need to understand that this isn't just a temporary setback. This is potentially, you know, crippling for the business and the stock. And, and it's just time to cut losses at that point. The second one would be a substantial increase in the debt to equity ratio. Substantial meaning, you know, going from something that's like an average debt to, Debt to equity, usually the average ratio is around one, and now we could be talking about two, four, six, something like that, like a, a really, really extreme kind of just out of nowhere. It's like they're they're just piling on debt to really try to stay afloat. Obviously, going from like 10% or a, a 0.1 debt to equity to like a one, that's not, that's not terrible because now they're just, they went from like really good to just average. I'm talking about going from maybe average or even above average or slightly below average to just a ridiculous debt to equity. They're, they're, they're really just playing with fire and it's just a house of cards and it's going to collapse. And you want to make sure that you're not the one left holding the bag in one of those situations. So monitor the debt to equity ratio. The value trap indicator is going to automatically for actually all three of these, the value trap indicator does if you put in the the updated financials whenever they release an annual report, that value trap indicator is going to flag a strong sell and you're going to know to get out. But these are some things that are concrete that you can keep in your mind or you can write down on a piece of paper, take notes. 
that these three checklist items are, are big signals to sell. And that last one is going to be a year of negative earnings. Obviously, again, this is similar to the first one I talked about. It's just a bad sign. It's, it's a company failing to do what its number one purpose is in this life. And a company's number one purpose is to turn a profit. You can talk to people. They might disagree with me, uh, point to different companies here and there and, and talk about how Wall Street's rewarded them. I don't really care. I, I have a very fundamental approach. I think that a business at its core is there to make a profit so it can pay, you know, pay back the shareholders in the form of a dividend. And so when it's failing to do that, there's just so many companies that will go through rough patches, but won't have to deal with negative earnings that there's no reason why you should stick around for a company that does have negative earnings. It's, it's just bad business. It's a bad business model and you should stay away. So the recap, that's number one, a complete cut of the dividend, red flag. Number two, substantial increase in the debt to equity ratio, red flag. Number three, a year of negative earnings, red flag. Now, as far as taking profits, obviously the trailing stop does that nicely for us, kind of helps us get in at a close to a high. You know, if, if you're doing a 25% trailing stop, hopefully your stock's appreciated and you're able to get somewhere close to where the peak was. And that's what's really nice about the trailing stop. But as far as the, the dividend fortress side of it, you know, it, 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 that can be more of a personal decision. And that's where some of your personal financial goals kind of come into play. It's, are, are you trying to hit a specific net worth number where, okay, well, if I have several positions that are valued at X, well, then maybe that makes more sense for me to just sell out and make those returns and those gains guaranteed and be okay with maybe missing out on them running another 200, 300%, whatever that may be. Or you could have an approach kind of like what I have where I've had the fortune, I've had the, uh, I guess you call it like that, the fortune of being able to start young. So I'm kind of looking at my retirement account as more of a income generator in the future. So, you know, I want to have these strong dividend positions so I can use that income later on to sustain myself and enjoy all of life's pleasures, travel, do all those sorts of things. So my goals might be a little bit different in the sense that I want to have more so an income stream than I do a specific net worth number. So that's all going to be different and personal and really catered to your own personal situation. So how you want to take profits, how much kind of regret you want to risk, if you want to call it that, it's all going to be different, but I think one thing we can all agree on is that there are some major red flags that you want to stay away from and you want to cut your losses because you know you can look at the sales page for my value uh, the the say their research e letter and I talk about the drawdowns and the the effect of drawdowns and how much more money you need to make on a stock loss. It's 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 a big factor into your overall performance. So being able to know that number one, you're going to protect yourself from that. And number two, you're going to have specific systems to to have not only an entry point, but an exit point. I think that's just a really great way to go. And it's it's 
kind of putting all those odds in your favor and giving you the greatest chance to to do really well in the market. That was awesome, dude. That was a uh, talk talk about a brain dump. Holy buckets, Batman. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was great. Uh, you know, honestly, a lot of the things that Andrew was uh, just weighing out are exactly the same things that I have for for my checklist with selling, you know, the having the trailing stop of 25% and the three that he outlined for the dividend fortresses, those are all exactly the same thing. And, you know, I think Andrew made a lot of great points in that. And, you know, the the conversation about selling is such a hard conversation and it's something that is not talked about enough. And, you know, people focus so much on buying and they don't focus on selling. And that sometimes can be, you know, like the the reader said, you know, she's lost a lot. You know, that's where she's lost a lot of money is by holding on too tight or holding on for too long. And. You know, just having these these four simple things that Andrew outlined can help you avoid some of that. And I think the mindset that he was talking about as well is, you know, not worrying about missing out and not worrying about all those other things. You know, just keeping your head on straight and thinking about what's important to you and having these checklists that we've talked about can help you be so much more centered about what you're doing as opposed to worrying about what Johnny and Susie are doing over there. It's not about them. It's about you. It's about what you're doing and the money that you're making and the choices that you're making and not worrying about, you know, what other people are doing and not worrying about missing out because we're always going to miss out. You know, there's always going to be opportunities that we just, we didn't take advantage of for whatever reason. And you can't live in the past. You have to live in the now and the future and worry about those things because that's what you can control. You can't control about what happened, you know, in the past. You just can't. And it's gone. It's done. We have to learn from it and move on. And I think that's really what I have to say about that quote our friend Forrest Gump. Perfect. I think uh, yeah. we'll call him up and, and see what, what stocks he recommends for tomorrow. <laughs> I'm sure he'd have some good ones. <laughs> well, I don't do cardio, so I don't know how well that phone call will go. <laughs> very good. Very, very good point. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap it up for our conversation about checklist tonight. I hope you enjoyed our little chat. I think Andrew and I both had some interesting things to say and, Checklists really can make or break you as an investor and they're, you know, whether you have a really long one like Manish Pabrai or whether you have a shorter one, just having some simple things that you have as a guideline to help you make better decisions is going to make you so much of a better investor and it will help save you a lot of money and also help you make a lot of money. So without any further ado, go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on safety, find some intrinsic value before you pull the trigger. And without any further ado, have a great week, and we'll talk to you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.